Blog Talk Radio. Welcome and thank you for joining us today on Three Women, Three Ways. We're the radio show that talks about women's issues, particularly violence against women. And we have some really um, wonderful guests today. We have Terry O'Neill, who is president of the National Organization for Women. Terry, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great, great to talk to you. And you have, of course, much more extensive biography than that, and I'll ask you to review some of that. But first, let me also inter- interview or introduce Erin uh, Jamison, who is the um, – are you the executive director? I am, yes. Aaron? Yep, yep, of the Colorado Coalition Against Sexual Abuse. Two extremely knowledgeable people. We're really happy to have them here today. And if you have questions, you can call in to 646-378-0430. Our topic today is false allegations. Terry, why don't you give us a little bit more background about you? So I became president of NOW in the in 2009. Um, I've been working in women's rights since really about the mid-1990s. At that time, I was actually on the law faculty at Tulane University, and David Duke, I don't know if your listeners will recognize the name of David Duke, he's a former oh, leader of the Klan, yeah, ran for governor of Louisiana, and that's what got me into uh, uh, politics. And I just, uh, I, I, I want, you know, once I was um, in, once I was trying to stop Duke, I started looking around my community and realizing how much more work we need to do uh, to achieve women's equality. And clearly, um, I, I became active in my NOW chapter there, and one of the two main issues that the NOW chapter worked on was uh, is violence against women, domestic violence, sexual assault, uh, and also um, ending racism, which is another um, core issue of NOW. Good. Thank you. Erin, could you give us a little bit more background? I just briefly said what your position is, but you have mm-hmm. a lot of experience in this area. Could you share some of that? Sure. Um, I worked directly with victims of domestic violence and sexual assault for about 10 years in a couple of uh, different locations, including New York and Montana, so very different um, locations and types of experience, and then um, moved to Colorado a few years ago, and um, as you said, I'm I'm the executive director of the Colorado Coalition Against Sexual Assault, so we um, really work to advocate for positive policy changes in in sexual assault policy in Colorado, and we also work with other coalitions across the country to, to really affect a similar change on the federal level and, and try to make some progress both in services for sexual and domestic violence victims as well as um, trying to change some um, public misperceptions that still persist around these issues and, you know, ultimately um, it would be wonderful to end these crimes against women. That's, that's <laughs> right. our ultimate goal. Well, let, me, <laughs> let me just give a real brief background for me, so that our listeners know who they're who they're listening to. I have a master's degree uh, in uh, uh, public administration with a focus on domestic violence that I got from UC Denver, and I'm currently working on my dissertation for a PhD in psychology. And I came in to interest uh, in domestic violence and women's violence against women about 15 years ago, and I have never actually worked in the field. I have uh, been a volunteer in the field a lot. So that's who you're talking to, and I would say the three of us, especially you two, have a big background and a very extensive background in addressing our issue today. Now, like most people, when I was doing my research, I went to Google and I typed in false allegations, false claims, false accusations. And I would say fully 95% of what came up was from men's groups talking about how horrible all these false allegations are. And I ran across one website that just said, and this was in a news release that they sent out, and it said, over one million false allegations of domestic violence are filed each year. These allegations often result in family breakup and the removal of children from their parents, according to a report released today. Now, it doesn't exactly say what that report is, 
but one million false allegations, that's a heck of a lot. Um, Terry, you want to say something about that? Sure, it's false. (laughs) (laughs) The reality is that there is a very, very well-funded, focused political opposition to the Violence Against Women Act. One of the arguments that this highly well-funded organization or set of organizations, kind of network of organizations uses is all the allegations are false. These are also the same folks who um, object to strengthening laws against sexual assault. Uh, these are, uh, and, and, and fundamentally, um, some of them are, I don't know if you're familiar with father's rights groups, the so-called father's rights. Um, mm-hmm. They're not actually father's rights. They're actually uh, men's rights, attempts to undo all of the work that women's organizations have done to, to, uh, you know, to move women into equality um, in the United States. So they, they will absolutely make these claims. They have no evidence to back them up. They, have, um, they, have, they, they, are, they are politically motivated, not fact-motivated. And I would venture to say a lot of it is financially motivated as well. Um, Sure. Yeah, and and I have to say, you know, I think that that a lot of ordinary guys get caught up by these well-funded organizations. You know, divorce is hard. Both both husbands and wives um, uh, lose a ton of money during divorce. Now, husbands, men tend to come out of divorce and get back on their feet economically much uh, more quickly and much more thoroughly than women do. But everybody loses in the moment of the divorce. And, and, and uh, most of the studies that I've seen show that parents with children during divorce, it's a very tough time. And parents are naturally inclined. They want their families on their side. They want their kids to be on their side. There's a lot of, there's a lot of I want everybody to blame that person and not me. So that's normal uh, human behavior. The vast majority, the good news is the majority of couples who break up and who parent after divorce uh, eventually get to a place where they can do that without acrimony. What happens is you get, I think what happens a lot in individual cases is, is men um, feel beleaguered and then they are easily manipulated and exploited by these uh, father's rights slash men's rights groups. These may be men who are already inclined to distrust women's equality, but they get sort of caught up in this thing. So, that, so that's one, one problem. Uh, the, other, the other problem, of course, is the actual predator who is intent on abusing either the women or the children or both in his family and will use any kind of a tool at his disposal to be able to maintain that control and abuse. So there's two Aaron, very different have you scenarios seen, going on. Erin, have you seen this in your uh, work? Yes, I, I think specifically in my work now, um, we often see child sexual abuse allegations um, in in custody cases are, while they are rare when they do happen, I, I think we, that's often attributed to, um, to um, women just trying to make something up to, to um, hurt the, the, the husband or, or um, ex-husband in, in the case. And I think... Um, that's often fueled by just kind of general societal misperceptions we have about false allegations of sexual abuse and and sexual assault. And um, there's still a whole lot of folks who believe that that these um, allegations are made falsely all the time. When when really reliable research shows a range of about two to eight percent, which isn't really any different than any other crime. Um, and that the, there's a whole lot of reasons I think around language, around what unfounded versus unsubstantiated versus false means and how law enforcement uses that language and, and that even if a case is un, unfounded or, or unsubstantiated, that doesn't necessarily mean that um, it's a false allegation. But, but when we look at the research around what truly are false allegations, it, it is a low percentage and, and isn't different than, than other crimes that we see. And I think the fact that those myths persist um, really does play well, into I think- all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've done um, my share of speaking about this issue and therefore done my share of research about these issues. And I uh, kind of focus a lot on the courts and what the courts are doing. And in my opinion, courts seem to operate under three rules, three assumptions. One is that a father has a right to his children. 
-hmm. The second one is that children are damaged if they don't have a relationship with a father, no matter who he is. And the Mm -hmm. third one is she lies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I mean, that's what I have seen. And Mm -hmm. so if you're starting out with the, and I have to believe that the courts reflect the general population. So if you're starting out with the assumption that she lies, then if she Mm -hmm. says something, um, it's always suspect. So if she says, well, he abused my children, um, immediately red flags go up for certain people saying, oh, well, she'll do this. You know, she'll just lie about this. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some of the people that I've spoken to said that they are advising, some of the advocates I've spoken to said that they are advising women to not make accusations, even if it's true. Mm-hmm. Have you yeah. guys either ever experienced any of that? Yeah, you know, the, the, we at NOW um, and the NOW Foundation has a project that we call the crisis in the family courts. We do think that it's a crisis uh, proportion because, um, you know, although the, the cases of allegations of sexual abuse, particularly sexual abuse of children, that leads to divorce, right? The wife finds out yes. about it and and she's appalled and, and, and then starts the divorce proceedings. Um, the, the, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the organization, the California Protective Parents Association. That is a state-based grassroots organization um, intended to help uh, uh, battered mothers who have lost custody of their children. There are a number of other states. New York uh, State has um, a, a, a battered mother's organization as well. And what we find is in part of the problem is that this, um, this phenomenon is, is rare enough that it's really hard to get national attention or even you know, any kind of widespread attention. So I'm really glad, so glad you're talking about this on this radio show because well, it, it is a... It is a human tragedy in the family where this happens. And you're absolutely right. The courts are very reluctant to believe a woman mm-hmm. who claims it. Yeah. yeah, and I would, uh, would say another trend that we're seeing is um, is a lot of states are looking at legislation, and Colorado actually did and passed legislation this year around making sure that if a um, – if the birth of a child is the result of a of a rape of sexual assault and that that offender is convicted of that sexual assault, that they cannot get custody of their child. And mm-hmm. one of the results of that legislation is um, a, a legislative task force that we've been participating in over the past few months. And it's, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the two... The two major um, pieces of that conversation, and, and this is among uh, attorneys and, and folks in the family court system, um, even among among people who should, you know, have enough expertise with these cases to frankly know better. Um, some of the conversations that are really around, um, even if the father is a rapist, it's better to have that than none, or or better to have his family involved in the child in the child's life than not. That that is a fundamental. Um, a, a fundamental component of our uh, of our custody system, and and the third thing you said that if if we persist in this kind of legislation in, in states and and really try to even expand it to perhaps situations where there's a preponderance of evidence that a rape um, was that a rape occurred, even if there's not a conviction, suddenly the, suddenly the argument is well then all of these women are going to come forward and say that this happened just to make sure the person can't have custody, and it, it it's it's pretty um, frustrating yeah. that we're still we're still in that in that. And, um, phase of discussion on this issue. Yeah. And it's really outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. First of mm-hmm. all, uh, the, the, the denial of parental rights is based on a clear preponderance of the evidence standard, mm-hmm. right? It's a midway right. between clear, it's clear and convincing evidence um, uh, standard, the midway between beyond a reasonable doubt and just the preponderance of the evidence. That's, that's in almost all states. And yet suddenly... If a, if a woman needs to keep her child safe from a rapist, that's not good enough to terminate parental rights. It's really crazy. Mm-hmm. And I just, if I could just tell a story out of my, my home state of Maryland, I went up to Annapolis, the state capitol, to testify for a bill that would allow termination of parental rights on uh, clear and convincing evidence that the child was the product of rape. And the reason that the law was, was introduced 
was Child Protective Services had provided services for a young woman who uh, was raped repeatedly when she was, I think, between the ages of 13 and 16 years old. Those rapes uh, was by her father or stepfather or uncle, father, I think, father. Um, he uh, he was no longer on the scene. She he she was impregnated. She had a child at the age of thirty something. This uh, rape survivor ultimately committed suicide, leaving behind mm-hmm. a sixteen year old daughter. Um, so the mother is gone, and under under Maryland's procedures, Child Protective Services needed to find the father, um, mm-hmm. and, and normally would get per, you know his permission to terminate parental rights, and then they would try to find an, a, an adoptive home for the child or make an arrangement with extended family members. Um, oh, I know she was living with extended family members, and, but they were elderly, and they both um, needed too much care. All right, so Child Protective Services said, so they were required to, to contact the father. They contact the father. He wants access to her because he's a pedophile and she's exactly the right age for him. Okay? So he's not going to give up parental rights. And they, and they had no law. They couldn't, there was no law that said, well, wait a minute, you know, you're a rapist. You can't do this. Ultimately, in that particular case, they were able to work it out because they found other extended family members who convinced this man to stay away from this kid and give her a shot at having a good future. And they, so I don't know what they did to convince them. It was, it was uh, not, it was not positive. (laughs) But, um, but so, so they said we need to have a law just to close this little gap. That's all they thought it was. Let's make sure that this doesn't happen again to somebody else. We went in and ran into a buzz saw of opposition in the judicial committee of the Maryland House of Delegates. I was appalled. You had a man, uh, a delegate from Prince George's County, who actually said, uh, what did he say? The worst thing that could possibly happen to a man is to be accused of rape. <laughs> and I'm like, no, buddy. I could think of three things right now I could do to you. But no, that's Go ahead, Terry. Wanna... Yeah, <laughs> that would be worse than being accused of rape. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Terry, do you want to jump in on this? This that that was Terry. I was. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Wow. This is you know astounding to me that the assumption is that you know for me a parent is crucial to a child. And both mm-hmm. parents are crucial to a child unless they're hurting the child. Right. Then right. it's, it's flip-flops, and no one has a right mm-hmm. to hurt somebody else, and nobody has a right mm-hmm. to a human being to access mm-hmm. that human being, especially if you violated the trust of that relationship. Mm-hmm. So, um, But then we get the, the response from some of these people who are accused of, of this, of violating this uh, trust, saying, well, but it's a phony it's a phony accusation. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I've seen is that an allegation is made of abuse and the court decides that there's not enough evidence to substantiate that. Then the accused person seems to jump on a bandwagon and say, see, the court said it wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I've been exonerated. Yeah, yeah, and that's and not what that's yeah. Completely different things. Um, Mm-hmm. Terry, I want. I think I want you to talk about about this if you can, because I realize that we have we have limited time with you. Do you want to address yes. that issue? Yes. In fact, now Foundation, um, uh, we filed an amicus brief in a case involving um, uh, a divorce and custody issue. So one of the issues, one of the problems that you have, and uh, is that. In many cases, this, this, this particular case came up in the District of Columbia where the property settlement of divorce takes place in a different, um, uh, a different court than the custody decision and definitely at different times. So one of the things that happened in this particular case, uh, um, mom and dad split up. The, the, the child is very young, maybe two or three years old. Um, dad is mom by by mutual agreement. Mom is the primary caregiver of the child, and dad visits with the child. Uh, they are there's there's custody arrangements to be done in court, and there's property settlements to be done in court. 
child, uh, at some point, mom uh, believes that child has come home and has been physically abused by dad. All right. Um, she wants to make that claim in one of in, in the I think the property uh, dispute court, and the judge says I'm not going to entertain that claim. I'm not even going to bring it up because it's not relevant to what we're dealing with here. Then comes the custody uh, decision, a different court, a different judge, and she brings the claim up again. And this judge says, I see that that claim has already been adjudicated and therefore I'm not going to consider it in my court. And she and her lawyer say, no, it has not been adjudicated. The claim was raised, but we have not had the opportunity to present evidence. And the judge said, I'm not going to hear it. I told you I was not going to hear it. The judge was irritated with the woman for bringing the claim at all. And he imposed on her, uh, he, he required her to pay attorney's fees to her ex-husband in excess of $350,000 and then awarded physical custody of the now four-year-old child to the father in the District of Columbia. By this time, mom had moved to Florida where she has family and, and was able to get a job. The judge then said, Dad in D.C. Has, uh, has sole custody of the child, and mom must travel to D.C. twice a month for um, supervised visitation, and if she misses one, then she could lose even supervised visitation. The effect, and we believe the intended effect, of this series of rulings by the judge was to bankrupt the mother, to, to impose a hellacious financial uh, penalty on a woman because she had brought the charge. And what we said in our amicus brief is we're not saying one way or another whether this charge is, uh, is correct or accurate. What we're saying is if the charge is colorable, and, and everyone, all parties agreed it was a colorable charge. It had never been adjudicated. Explain what that means. Colorable. It means that there's some evidence. There's some evidence, but, but okay. a fact finder has not actually sorted through all of the evidence and said, yes, it happened this way or no, it happened this other way. So the fact finder hasn't had a chance, but there's clearly evidence in there. No. Okay. So it's, that's what they, it's a colorable claim. So what we said was if, if there is a colorable claim of abuse, no court should be able to penalize the parent that brings that claim and because what we think can happen is uh, if, this, if this court's decision is allowed to, to stand, think of all the other women that could come before this very same judge. What is their lawyer going to tell them? The lawyer is going to say, hey, this guy punishes people who come in. Unless you've got an ironclad case, unless, you've, you know, you, unless there is no way to have any kind of evidence against what your, you know, what your beliefs are, you've got a judge who will bankrupt you just for making the accusation. And that's not acceptable. So we filed the brief. Um, I actually, I don't know what the status of it right now, but it's a, it's a very important uh, thing, and I'm, and I'm concerned that that kind of thing happens all around the country. Erin, what's your experience with that kind of thing? Have you seen women punished for bringing up allegations? Um, I haven't seen that. Um, that doesn't mean it's not happening. I think that's just a little bit outside of, of kind of our um, scope of work. But I think um, in this process of looking at legislation around the parental rights for rapists, that we um, there's there's like I, as I was saying before, there's still so um, so much fundamental, so many fundamental assumptions around. Um, around these false allegations that I think I wouldn't be at all surprised if that's happening um, in Colorado as well. Well, I'll tell you, uh, a few years ago I wrote a book called Why Doesn't She Just Leave? Shameless self, mm. self-promotion here. Um, but <laughs> what I did was I interviewed uh, women um, who had left. They had all left, but you know they'd stayed longer than friends and neighbors thought they should have, which we mm-hmm. all know there are some real significant reasons for that. But one of the stories that I chose to um, uh, include in the book was a woman who did have her children taken away for bringing up accusations of um, child abuse, sexual abuse of the child. And she even had 
a psychologist report indicating that the child had been sexually abused. Mm-hmm. The judge said, well, there's no proof that it was the father, and therefore you're just bringing this up, you know, wife, woman, to get custody. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we will punish you and give full custody mm-hmm. to the father. Wow. And it distresses me that, you know, there's a punishment for bringing up a question of safety regarding safety for your kids. Exactly. Um, yeah, and, exactly. and, and I that think woman, that that. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, uh, that woman uh, fought for for as many years as she could um, mm-hmm. to get back custody of her child. And uh, the last time I spoke with her, she said that she looked at her child, who was now an 11 year old boy, and she said he's mm-hmm. turning to be just like his father. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, she ended up killing herself. Uh, <gasps> over that. Gosh. So, you know, I mean, it, it, to me, I see this as a huge, huge issue, this punish the mother by moving the child into mm-hmm. a place of potential mm-hmm. danger. I mean, even, mm-hmm. if you're no, even if you're not 100% sure that mm-hmm. this, uh, this sexual abuse occur- occurred, why not err on the side of safety for the child? Mm-hmm. Right, um, exactly. I, I just, yeah. And, and I think it, it demonstrates a lack of understanding about who is often abusing children sexually. I mean, I'm not saying it's um, the father the majority of the time, but it's it's usually a family member, and I mean, including the father. So I think um, that that judge shows a fundamental misunderstanding. I mean, that I think that needs to be the, like you said, erring on the side of safety really needs to be the number one priority and not just against the mother, which how many times do we hear about erring on the side of safety means children are taken away because there's domestic violence in the home because they're erring on the side of safety. But then when it comes to these situations, suddenly we'd rather err on the side of the father. I, I think it's Well, that's it's because despicable. we know women lie and make false allegations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, right. That's, that's the assumption. Um, mm-hmm. Wow. This is, uh, I think this is a terrible situation, um, as we all do. In doing my research and running across those many, many, many websites that um, – tried to confirm the issue of false allegations made by women. I also ran across a study, and unfortunately I didn't write down the information, the name of the study, but it indicated that, yes, sometimes there are false claims, but that mm-hmm. percentage of false claims for women is about the same as the percentage of false claims for men. Have either mm-hmm. of you seen that research? So I have not seen the research itself, but it, but what I've what I've seen is you know with summaries of studies that that lean exactly the right direction. In other words, uh, people who make false allegations of many different there are people who make false allegations of crime. I was held mm-hmm. up at gunpoint. I you know my house was burgled. Um, and there's it's a it's a very small percentage of the people who will actually lie about being a victim of a crime. And I think um, Aaron, I think you said earlier is between. Two and eight percent. I saw a study that said six percent. So it's right in there. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, so of course it happens. Um, but it happens for all crimes. Why are we singling out um, domestic violence or child abuse as uh, as to be treated differently from false allegations in in other uh, regarding other types of crimes? Well, yeah, and I, and I think question. in terms of sexual assault, I think. Um, the other thing to look at is is um, what are the circumstances when a false report is made. Um, I mean, a lot of times there's that history of mental or emotional problems. Um, there's a lot of the characteristics of a quote unquote copycat crime. I mean, um, they can they often don't look like other reports. And and as Terry was saying, um, that would be true of of all sorts of crimes. But I think. Obviously, um, the fact that we still live in a culture that fundamentally doesn't believe women is is why we focus on these crimes and not others. Right. Yeah. Right. I think you're true. Um, one of the the pieces of research that I found, the same one that used the you know one million false allegations a year, also said that. Um, Every, and this is a quote from Elaine Epstein, a former uh, president of the Massachusetts Bar Association, and she says, everyone knows that restraining orders and orders to vacate are granted to virtually all who apply. In many cases, <laughs> allegations of abuse are now used for tactical advantage. Right. So we've mm-hmm. just explored how it's 
can sometimes be terrifically harmful to a, a woman to make those allegations. How could that mm-hmm. possibly give you a tactical advantage? I, I don't understand that attitude. Yeah, Any it comments? does. I mean, the fact is, yeah, the fact is that that is just factually wrong. Um, these allegations of abuse, of domestic violence, of sexual assault are, um, are if anything, badly underreported. And there's a, mm-hmm. there's a huge number of reasons why victims would rather not report um, mm-hmm. assault. So the, the suggestion that they're being used tactically is just, there just isn't any evidence for it, and mm-hmm. to make the claim is, is one of the most irresponsible things you could do, because as Aaron said, we still live in a, in a society that does not blame women, that engages in slut-shaming around mm-hmm. sexual assault, that, um, and, and, where, and, and we've just heard, you know, one of the most tragic stories in the world about when policy fails, you know, when we allow distrust of women, slut-shaming, to drive policy, then you, you have a woman who ends her life, right, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, in those circumstances. That is, that is one of the most um, tragic failures of policy that you could possibly imagine. And if I could just make a plug for, for something that I'm doing right now, I'm, I'm calling you all from uh, an uh, Equal Rights Amendment conference in Rhode Island, mm-hmm at uh, Roger Williams University. And honestly, if we had women's equality in the Constitution of the United States, I think we would be having a very different conversation right now because mm-hmm. a requirement for equality for women in the Constitution I think would, would at, least, at least slow down and even eliminate many of these policy abuses that women are being forced to contend with. Mm-hmm. But don't you think, well, think this it, is going on for so many so many eons, you really think it could yeah. change change that easily? Yeah, not easily. I mean, for one thing, getting women into the Constitution is is, uh, is is going to continue to be a hard slog. I mean, we it stalled out in the 1980s when uh, when when uh, Ronald Reagan uh, stopped the Equal Rights Amendment from being ratified by all the states. And so, you know, it's it's uh, we're determined to push it forward, but it's a long, long slog. I think, however, that the country is changing. I think the world is changing. Um, you know, th- there is much more acceptance of the concept of human rights. Uh, today than there was before. And worldwide, there is much more awareness and acceptance of the concept of women's rights and sort of as a general matter than there was in the 1970s, for example. Um, we're not, because, you know, we've, just because we've come a long way doesn't mean we don't have a much, much, much longer uh, way to go, right? But, uh, but I think it is doable. Well, I hope so. Um, I did a presentation earlier this week um, with about women in politics, and I must say there were several women who were in their 20s there who really mm-hmm. didn't see any women's issue. They didn't see anything about women's issues being separate from men's issues. They didn't really see the need for a women's movement. They could do whatever they wanted. They have self-confidence. They didn't even see a need for um, any particular bonding or mentoring with other women. Wow, that disturbs me. Um, it disturbs me a lot. Um, uh, and, you know, in, in talking about not only politics, but also the issue that we're facing today. If we have young right. people who don't see that there's any um, discrimination against women that still exists, what happens when they encounter a situation like this? Uh, are, are they assuming that assumptions or that accusations are false as well? Um, you know what? What about the young people with the, with these issues? You know, I, I I I mean, I hear what you're saying, and I think that there is that sometimes. But the re, but the the reality is that younger women. It's very fascinating. Young women between the ages of 18 and 29 today are more politically engaged than younger women. That women between the ages of 18 and 29 were in the 1970s, and definitely far more politically engaged than, than that same age cohort was in the 1980s. So, so and, and I, I actually think that um, 
what happens is, especially women who deny that they face any equality problem, when they come up against it, the good news is they are not only shocked but indignant. And then they get angry, and then they use political engagement to start making change. We're seeing some of our strongest voting patterns is amongst younger women. And so that, I think, is, is kind of a counter story to the troubling idea of younger women saying, oh, there's nothing wrong. I also think that women across all ages have a tendency, and men do it too, we're bought into this idea that we're all individuals, that all of the challenges that we uh, face are individual to us. And so we forget that actually many of our challenges are societal challenges and that the right response is a collective response, right? If you're not making enough money to pay for a decent house for your kids and save up a little bit for your kids' college education, maybe you should try to join a union. Maybe you should think about a collective response because it's not just you not making that money. It's all your coworkers are underpaid because you're women. So, or, or raise the minimum wage, a collective response to a societal problem. We forget that. Well, let's go back to our original issue, which is false accusations yeah. <laughs> and the fallout yeah. for women. And do you think there is a collective response to that issue? I mean, I was uh, uh, taken aback by all the preponderance of this um, men's rights stuff uh, when I Googled domestic violence, when I Googled false accusations. Uh, I, I mean, it, really, it was about, you know, 90% men's rights stuff. Um, yeah, and that is, is there a collective yeah. response to this kind of thing about false allegations? Absolutely, there has to be. We need better laws. We need stronger laws. And right now, the the, the United States Congress is trying to figure out its federal budget. We need every woman who is and every man who is listening to this uh, to this radio broadcast. We need you to call your member of Congress and call your senator and demand full funding for the Violence Against Women Act program. The Violence Against Women Act is brilliant. It does just two things. It provides services to survivors of domestic violence, dating violence, stalking, and sexual assault, and it, it provides uh, trainings to hold, trainings for judges and prosecutors and police to hold perpetrators accountable for their crimes. So services for victims and holding perpetrators accountable. We need full funding for that. That's a collective response. And by the way, it's very definitely a collective problem because these fathers' rights groups are groups. They're well-funded. They are organized. They are, cre- they are um, uh, creating havoc in individual people's lives but it doesn't come out of individual circumstances. It is a, it is a collective threat to, to uh, women who are struggling. I hate to do this to you because I really love this conversation, but I need to, <laughs> I need to go catch a plane. <laughs> yes, I understand, Terry, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, maybe we can do this again sometime. Please, and as, and thank you so much. <laughs> all right, thank you. Uh, and as long as we're taking a little break here, let me throw out the phone number again, 646-378-0430. And you can join our conversation. Erin, let's get back to the false ac- accusations about sexual assault. In your experience, have you actually seen any of this happen, any false allegations? You know, I actually haven't um, seen it directly. I think, um, as we've been discussing, it does happen. And I think um, whenever I am doing education or or talking to folks about this issue, we often talk about, you know, when when this does happen, clearly um, there is some need for that person to get some kind of assistance or help. There's something going on there. I mean, it's not fun or in any way... um, beneficial to someone to make an accusation of sexual assault. So um, I I really try to give that person the benefit of the doubt, kind of theoretically. Like I said, I haven't actually encountered it directly, but um, I I think it's pretty safe to say there's something going on there, and it is a cry for help in in some way, even if it's not directly related to sexual assault or the issue that they're out out crying about. Um, But I think the, the bigger issue is that there's a whole lot of reasons that um, 
that people misunderstand this this issue, and, and I referenced this a little bit earlier, the, just in our language, I mean, and, and there isn't consistent language federally, on a state level, locally, even among law enforcement. I mean, you hear the words un, unsubstantiated, unfounded, baseless, and there's a whole lot of different words that get thrown around that I think the general public hears and thinks, oh, that means this was a false allegation, this didn't happen. And, and when you really drill down into what the definitions are of those terms, first of all, that they are different depending on which agency or who you're talking to. But, but secondly, that um, a lot of times the definition includes the fact that there is an assumption that, that the person is telling the truth. Maybe there just isn't enough evidence to link it to that particular crime um, or there isn't, um, there isn't a... Um, enough to charge the person, even if there's evidence that that crime actually happened, there, there isn't an, enough to, um, to legally charge them. And, and I think we have a, a long way to go in educating people that that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. I mean, recantation is related to this. I mean, we see a ton of recantation from sexual assault victims. And I think, I mean, understandably so to, you know, my neighbor who lives across the street who doesn't do this work, a, a recantation looks like, holy cow, this person said that sexual, they were raped, and then suddenly they're saying they weren't, and isn't this awful, and how often is this happening, and, you know, throw up our hands um, about this, and I think we we just have a long way to go in educating people that because of rape trauma syndrome, because um, of the way that we still societally and even interpersonally respond to sexual assault victims, it, when you really delve into it, there's a whole lot of reasons that make sense of why people recant, and that does not usually mean that the rape actually didn't happen. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we need to have those conversations. We need to be doing that education because it's, it's pretty complex about a human behavior, you know, but, but we, we need to be educating people. Wow. Um, we talked earlier about um, the assumption that there are so many false accusations and we talked a little bit about how, no, actually there's a very small percentage. But mm-hmm. it's those few false claims that, uh, or at least mm-hmm. people think that those claims are false if they're not acted upon. And as you're saying about the terminology, just because something isn't substantiated enough to uh, further pursue it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And it's the same right. thing with um, the false accusations, supposedly, about uh, sexual assault or domestic violence. Just because a court doesn't say, yep, this happened, let's arrest him, um, doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means that they couldn't get the evidential base for doing anything. Um, and I think that uh, it's hard for people to understand that. I, I think that people think, well, if, if he wasn't arrested, then it didn't happen. He was innocent. And, in fact, for every... 100 rapes that occur, only half are even reported. Is that your understanding? I mean, less than half. Most, most, uh, most research is um, estimating more like 15 to 20% are ever reported. So it, it's pretty, um, it, it's a significant issue under reporting. It is the, still the most unreported crime. And, and understandably so in, in some circumstances. I mean, it's incredibly traumatic crime. It's incredibly personal crime. And um, and as I've been saying over and over again, we still live in a society that um, fundamentally questions victims when they do come forward. And I can certainly understand why someone would not want to report when it happens to them. And I think we need to do a better job as a system. And just as people who, who are support people in the lives of victims, we need to do a better job of making that a more positive, supportive experience so that we do see these reporting rates go up, and there's a lot of research to show. I mean, we are seeing more and more prevention programs and education being done in schools and in on college campuses, and there's some pretty compelling research that shows when when you're doing prevention, when you're talking, to, for example, to college students, the minute they come to campus and, and they're in their um, first-year orientation, when you're talking about this issue and how to get help and what is sexual assault and what are the circumstances where it really happens and how can you support one another, we see reporting rates shoot up. And that, and that doesn't mean that, that sexual assault suddenly happening more on that campus. We're just seeing people actually coming forward and getting the help that they, that they need, and, and that's the direction we need to be going. 
Well, and I think also as a parent, I don't know if you have kids or not. I, my kids are, are pretty much grown at this point. But it was always my um, goal to teach my children that they could be trusted. What they said would be trusted. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of fundamental to this. I mean, in our society, we don't really trust that if we tell someone we were hurt or raped or you know violated in some way, that they will necessarily believe us. Right. And... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that I think I was actually just speaking with a therapist yesterday who was providing some education to a group that I'm in, and she has two small children, and she says that she practices, um, talk. she literally role plays with her kids who are both under the age of 10 around what to do if someone touches you or if someone makes you uncomfortable and, and the way and how you can... Um, tell her no matter what this person says because, you know, with grooming behavior, we so often see, you know, um, don't tell, I don't, you I'll, I'll get in trouble or if you really love me, you won't tell and, and, and we know so often the perpetrator is someone that that child um, probably cares about that, that we see that that's an effective tactic and I think it is, I, I'm not a parent and I think, I can imagine that it would, that it feels incredibly scary or, or just uncomfortable or or or, um, or I guess just not sure how to approach an issue like this, but I really liked the way she framed that around practicing and, and role-playing and just making it a normal thing and, and, as you said, reassuring her children that they will be believed and you can always tell me and, and um, you won't be in trouble for this. I mean, I think it sounds simple, but it, it, that's what we need to be doing with our, with our kids because perpetrators are know exactly what to say to keep them silent and we need to be counteracting that exactly and i i we had a, a show not too long ago and, and a caller said well when do you start talking to your children about mm-hmm. issues like domestic violence and rape and i said from the time they're born you just yes, I totally make it a agree. part of 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 the conversation of course age appropriate um yes. and, and you don't act like it's something that you at meet, reach a magic age and then we sit down and and it's a big secret and it's a big deal. You, you need to right. start having these conversations with their kids, with your kids, as soon as yes. conversation starts with your children. You know, you hear something on the radio and then you don't just bypass it. You ask your kids, you know, do you know what that means? Or, uh, you know, have, do you know anybody who's experienced this? Or, you know, whatever uh, right. prompts the, the discussion is the time to have the discussion, I think. Um, and yes, I don't I know. Totally that, agree. I don't know that there are a lot of uh, parents who discuss things like violence against their children. I think there's a lot of that stranger danger stuff going on, um, but I'm not convinced that um, making it seem like some stranger who wants you to find his puppy uh, is the only source of danger <laughs> for children. Um, and right. of course, it's a, fine, it's a fine line. How do you prepare your children? Uh, without making them paranoid, you know, that something's yes. going to happen to them, and all, uh, that all people are mean and nasty. Um, exactly. And just... I think that is what feels hard to parents, you know, um, when you really, I mean, I think a lot of people understand that that sexual assault is most often perpetrated by someone that you know, but when you really get into um, how, to, how do I then prevent that, it, it does feel overwhelming. You don't want to make your kids scared of the entire world and every yeah. person they interact with. And I think um, Jan Hinman is, has passed away, but she's really um, did some foundational work that we still really rely on in this field. And um, I, every person that I know who has a baby, I give them her book called A Very Touching Book, and it's um, a book for kids. And it's all about, I mean, it's not directly related to abuse, although there's a little bit of that, and it's all about kind of learning what our, what we should be calling different parts of our body and actually calling them the correct names. And mm-hmm. and I love the book because there's pieces of it where it says, you know, um, it, it's talking directly to the child and it's saying, you know, mommy and daddy might be uncomfortable saying vagina, but you really need to help them say that word because... We know that if you're teaching kids to say those words, you're helping them feel more comfortable talking about potential abuse, and you're not kind of inadvertently colluding with a perpetrator who might say, who might call it, you know, secret touching, and this is our secret. If, if you 
kind of perpetuated that shame about your child's body, the perpetrator can use that. And, of course, that's no one's intention when they're kind of calling it private places or or secret places that that no one should touch. But I'll never forget listening to Jan talk about this and, and, and saying, you know, we don't mean to be doing this, but we're helping perpetrators by doing that and not calling body parts by their name and not talking to our kids at early ages. It's incredibly critical, and it seems unrelated, but it's actually very related to to preventing abuse and helping kids feel comfortable coming forward, and I completely agree with you. We need to be doing that age-appropriately, like you said, but the minute that we're able to communicate and it's coming up, we need to be doing it. And, and, I mean, talk about something we have a long way to go with societally and something you don't want to bring up at a cocktail party. I mean, people have very strong opinions. (laughs) Oh, I believe that I have brought it up at a cocktail party on occasion. (laughs) I have too, and and it's really dangerous for me to do it because I don't have kids. So that comes up about 10 minutes in when no one agrees with me, and they're like, what do you know? You don't have children. But um, but but you're the one that knows all about it, you know? (laughs) Well, and and I'm really really the popular... I'm really, I'm really popular at baby showers when I'm handing yes, out the yes. sexual abuse yeah. prevention books, but I think that's, I mean, it, it's oh. it's such a reality for so many people, and, and really new research is showing that people who've been victimized, the vast majority is happening as children before they're 18. For boys, it's before they're 12. I mean, we've got to pay attention to this issue, and not just in a, like you said, in a stranger danger scary way, but in a Let's really have conversations so that we can prevent this and, and, and identify it early on. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, we also have to address the issue that it's boys and girls that need to know this information. Yes. Uh, sometimes we think that we're just preparing our daughters for it, but we also need to prepare our sons, you know, yes. about what is appropriate, what isn't appropriate, what might get him in trouble, what no means. Yes. You know, uh, yes. uh, you know, all of those things are important for a boy to learn, too. Um, mm-hmm. So we can't just all say, you know, okay, we'll train our girls to protect themselves. We need to train mm-hmm. our, our young men to protect themselves as well and others. So, yes. you know, just teaching kids appropriate behavior, you know. Now, yes. what if what if you have been uh, raped, say? Mm-hmm. Of the hundred, let's use this, this, this anal, you know, our, our, analysis, our uh, analogy here, if... A hundred people are raped, and say twenty of them report the rape. Of those, maybe ten have a perpetrator that's found and arrested. Now, stop me if I'm Mm -hmm. making wrong assumptions here. And of that ten that go to the prosecutor, the prosecutor says, "Well, five of these, I wouldn't be able to make the charges stick." So that leaves five out of a hundred that might actually be prosecuted. And of those that go to trial, maybe two or three are actually found guilty and receive a punishment. Uh, yeah, I think um yeah, I think your numbers are even a little bit optimistic, unfortunately. I mean, we're really seeing one to five five is the highest number that we're seeing prosecuted. Um and then of those, as you as you said, um, we're lucky to get five that um that are that result in a in a conviction, and then um, less than two of those does the offender experience any incarceration, and and that's something when we're talking about false allegations or really any issue around sexual assault. I mean, one of my number one concerns is um, that we are never going to get reports to increase, and we're never going to to really um, change this situation and prevent this crime if if we have a system that is that incredibly unfriendly to victims and unable to hold perpetrators accountable. And we've come a long way. There's a whole lot of good training that goes on, but I've talked to some amazing prosecutors who do everything we would want a prosecutor of sex crimes to do, and at the end of the day they tell me what we're really up against is our juries, our general public's opinions about this about this crime and that there's so, still so much misinformation that persists. And, and prosecutors, I mean, they're in an unenviable position. They really have to look at the evidence that they have in the situation um, and, and see, do I want to put a victim on the stand? Do I want to put someone through this when I know the kind of bias and stereotypes that jury members walk in with and, and jurors walk in with and, and trying to make that decision, I think, Talking to good prosecutors, I know that weighs into their decision of whether to, for instance, 
plea the crime down to a lesser charge or or not move forward at, at all on a crime. And, and of course, there, we also have a ways to go in, in training all prosecutors to do better, but um, even the good ones, I, I just, I think they really, they really are up against um, a hard road in terms of what the general public still thinks about this issue. And I've been doing this long enough that it's like we can, we can train people till we're blue in the face, and at the end of the day, if we're not doing public education about this and educating people, from a young age and educating people, older people as well, that that um, there's only so much we can do in this system and, and victims deserve to be able to come forward and be treated well and have the system hold the perpetrators accountable. And, and there's we, we've got to look at the jury piece of that as well, is what I'm saying. Well, and I think part of it is you mentioned public perception. I'm not mm-hmm. sure that um, the public really perceives rape as traumatic as it is. I'm thinking specifically mm. of that Steubenville situation where the athletes, you know, um, right. uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure everybody's familiar with that. And the publicity surrounding that all had to do mm-hmm. with they're ruining these boys' lives. They're ruining these yeah. boys' lives. They have so much ahead of them. They're ruining these boys' lives. And I couldn't help think, but think, but what about the girl's life? Oh, you know, exactly. I mean, not. You know, maybe it's not ruined, but it sure as heck is not going to be the life that she would have had before. Yes, and I think I deal with that all the time. I, I serve on our state sex offender management board, and and I'm I'm often kind of raising that because there is a whole lot of um, worry about how how being charged and convicted with a sex crime affects the offender's life forever, and. And I'm usually the one raising my hand saying, okay, but let's not forget about the fact that it also affects the victim, the victim mm-hmm. forever. And, and even victims who do get therapy and do get help, it's never fully um, a, away from them. I mean, it's, it's, even if it's people do well integrating into their life, it is part of their identity and it doesn't ever go away. And um, I think we do need to kind of be reminding people of those lifelong impacts. And that's not to say... Again, that's not to say it's hopeless. Obviously, we wouldn't no. be doing the work we're, we're doing if it wasn't for the fact that victims do heal and they and they do live full, productive lives. And um, many of them go on to work in the field and be activists around sexual assault prevention. And um, but it, it is something that that has a lifelong impact, and um, we do need to remember that because I yeah that that is something you hear in the media. I mean, we had a case here in Colorado a few years ago. I'll never forget it. It was a child, um, the the victim was a child and male, um, I think it was someone in the family or a neighbor, I can't remember, and and he was acquitted and local news folks um, interviewed the jury, jury members afterwards and one of the jurors said, we absolutely believe that he did it to this child, that he assaulted this child, but we, we just don't think it's worth ruining his life forever. And I mean, and and not just I mean, not the child victim. We know that it's even harder to get people to hold offenders accountable when the victim is an adult. We see even more victim blaming. So, I mean, those those are discouraging situations. And obviously, I think we're making progress, but people still believe that, and we do need to really look at the fact that. it's so hard to even get someone prosecuted, let alone convicted, and there's hundreds and thousands of victims out there who who are impacted forever and are are not getting that that justice and accountability. Exactly, and I do think that as a culture, we do tend to accept the idea that women lie. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And when somebody says something to me about that issue, I say, Yeah, women. Some women lie. Some some men lie. Um, yes, exactly. And probably about the same percentage, and it's probably pretty low percentage of yeah, the population. It is. But I think that there is a general assumption that women lie. Yeah. And I don't know, uh, you know, I, I think that that's the basic thing that we come down to on this false allegations thing. Um, people assume that women are lying. Erin, yeah. I always end the show with a quote, and it was really difficult to find a quote today uh, about anything Mm -hmm. about false allegations. But I did Mm -hmm. get a a quote from Dag Dag Hammarskjöld, who was uh, United Nations head of the uh, United Nations back in the 50s and 60s, I believe. And he said, the assembly has witnessed over the last weeks how historical truth is established once an allegation has been repeated a few times, it is no longer an allegation. It is an established fact. 
even if no evidence has been brought out in order to support it. Now, that kind of sounds like it's contrary to what we've been talking about, but I think that if we look at it from the standpoint if, of if an allegation is made and I protest it often enough, pretty soon the protestations become fact. Erin, hmm. thank you so much for joining us. This is such a hot topic, and I just wish I could wave a magic wand and, and make sure <laughs> that uh, this doesn't happen to anyone. Um, it, it's a trauma. It's a disgrace. And um, I, I hope that we can definitely do something, especially to train judges in this issue. Erin, thank you so much for joining us today. It was lovely to have you and Terry O'Neill with us, and I hope you'll come back sometime. Great. Well, thanks for having me. It's a great conversation. I appreciate it. Now, I I might put you on the spot here. Do you have a hotline for for sexual assault handy? What was that you cut out? The hotline for sexual assault. Oh, if you give me five seconds, I can find it. Okay. Well, um, well, unfortunately, we don't have five seconds, but I promise we'll start okay. next week by giving that number, and uh, you can look up sexual assault in your, your phone book, actually. Thank you for joining yeah. us. Join us next week. Bye-bye.